Let's take our Bibles and go to Ephesians 2. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 17. And of course, Ephesians 8, 2, 8 and 9 are so familiar to us. Uh, and I guess verse 10 is also quite familiar. Yet uh, today we're going to put these three familiar verses in its own context and trying to learn what Paul wanted us to learn. So let's read Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, here both are Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your love to us. Thank you so much for your grace upon College Park Baptist Church. And half of us are down there at Lake Waccamo uh, having their own worship service. And half of us here uh, worshiping you up here in Cary. And uh, although we are far apart, from each other, just like we read in today's text that we are one in Christ. We are reconciled to one another through the blood of Christ. And now we are in one body of Christ. So Lord, we pray that would you please uh, bless the group down there. Uh, please please be with uh, Brother Ron, the uh, guard, as he's preaching to our people. Uh, please fill him with Holy Spirit and help our church down there. Uh, would uh, embrace your word with open heart, with obedient heart, and hope also for us here, Lord, as we are talking about this very important subject of good works. Help us to understand what this really means in the context of the church and our, uh, help our church, whole church people uh, to be one-minded about this matter and help us to uh, do the good works that we need to do for your glory and for the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So influenced by the individualistic culture, we often understand Christian good works as individualistic works. What I mean is we have so many or too many individualistic Christians in our churches. You know, your business is your business. My business is my business. 
And my business is none of your business. I mean, your business is none of my business. Let's not meddle with each other, but just let's do what we are supposed to do and we'll be happy in, at the end of the day. Kind of attitude is very prevalent among God's people on earth. So Christian faith is deeply personal. I'm not denying that fact. Fact, You know, it is a personal faith. It draws the person into a saving and transforming relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But Christian faith, while personal, is never individualistic. Our personal relationship to God must be expressed and experienced through our belonging to God's people. There can be no Robinson Crusoe Christians. By definition, Christians are the people who follow Christ together. Christians are the people who are gathered together as one body of Christ serving the same head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the good works we perform as the beneficiaries of God's amazing salvation must be done in the church and for the church. Let me say it again. The good works must be, be done in the church and for the church. Of course, it never means that doing good for society is unnecessary. Of course, we need to do good things for our society. Uh, but at the same time, doing good for society can't substitute for doing good for the church. According to the Bible, the primary stage on which we display our good works is the church. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, like I said a moment ago, is very familiar to us. And I'm sure you already know that we need to put these two verses in the context of, in verse, you know, of verse 10, which talks about the necessity of good works. Then are we familiar with the immediate context of verse 10? And actually, when we talk about Ephesians 2, we tend to talk about Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and kind of stop there. Not really going further deeper into the meaning of the good works and what Paul really means when he says we need to do good works which were prepared beforehand, which means before the foundation of the world, that we have to walk in them according to God's perfect plan. But to understand... Uh, what that good works, those good works are, we have to put verse 10 in its own immediate context, which is actually verses 11 through 17. So let's read uh, verse 10 again, just for the sake of the context again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So first... According to verses 8 through 10, we are saved to do good works as God's new creation. And verses 8 through 9, what does he say? It says, For by grace you, are, you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So God saves sinners by faith apart from good works. So we are saved by Faith. And one lexicon, Greek lexicon, defines the word grace like this. That which grants to another the action of one who volunteers to do something not otherwise obligatory. 
In other words, God's grace is the favor God voluntarily grants to us who are sinners despite our unworthiness and unloveliness. So grace is this. You love something so ugly. You give favor to something that's unlovable. And that's what God has done for us in Christ by giving us the grace, salvation. The salvation by grace means that we contribute nothing to our salvation while a God accomplishes it from the beginning to the end. So we are saved, but yeah, you know, we are saved uh, by faith apart from works. So, so we, those who are saved by grace are saved by faith apart from works. Salvation by faith means that we must trust in and depend on God for our salvation. By sending his son to the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, God accomplished every work that is necessary to deliver us from our sin. By simply trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross and committing ourselves to his authority, we are saved. There's nothing we can do to impress God to save us. Even the best work we can do before God is like a filthy rag. So Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And you see you know, a lot of good people doing good works, and even when they bring those good things to God, in his eyes, those are the filthy rags done by a filthy sinners. So the only way we receive salvation from God is to receive it from him as a gift. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. So there is nothing we can boast about our salvation. God hates any kind of human boasting. And salvation by faith, apart from works, prevents any kind of human boasting. So does it mean that good works are not necessary for the Christian life? Of course not. We know verse 10 of Ephesians 2. What does it say again? Verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God saves sinners for good works. We are saved by God apart from works, but we are saved for good works. While God doesn't require us to do good works for our salvation, he saves us to do good works. In our salvation, God recreates us as his workmanship for good works. Every item created in the world has its own purpose. For instance, this microphone has the purpose, what? It amplifies my voice so that I, I don't have to scream at the top of my lung. Uh, my voice is kind of little, you know, gone. But this microphone helps me. Why? But its purpose is to help me not to strain my voice while you can listen to my uh, words clearly. What about the chairs that you're sitting in? What's the purpose of your chairs? They're there for you to sit on so that you don't have to stand up or, you know, sitting on the floor with uncomfortable, uncomfortable posture. That's why those chairs were created, so that you can be listening 
and to God's word and participate in God's worship comfortably, then why are we created as God's workmanship? The Apostle Paul says, for good works which were prepared by God before the creation of the world. So we must do good works as the sinners saved by grace for the glory of God. That's the purpose of our salvation. So right after talking about the purpose of our salvation in verse 10, Paul begins to talk about the context in which we do good works. This is a point many Christians commonly miss. Many people think that the good works Paul is talking about in verse 10 are good works, good work, good works Christians do individually. In Paul's theology, however, good works can't be discussed apart from the setting of the church. So here's point number two for us. We are privileged to do good works as Gentile believers. According to verses 11 through 13, we know that we are privileged to do good works as Gentile believers. Without Christ, we were strangers to God, having nothing to do with him. Verse 11, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And as you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, what you find is the description of sinners, you know, who we were without Christ. Paul begins like this in verse 1, and you made him, uh, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and all of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So as Gentiles without Christ, we were what? Dead people in our own trespasses and sins. And we were walking according to the course of this world, and we were following the, the command of Satan, who is the, the prince of this air, by fulfilling our own flesh. You know, what are the three adversaries of the Christians? The devil, the world, and the flesh. And we were feasting in these three enemies as if we were part of them. And we were serving these three enemies of God. That's who we were apart from Christ. But in Christ... In verse 13, we are the beloved of God, having everything to do with God. That's verse 13. Verse 13, it says, But now in, in Christ Jesus, you who uh, once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. So the, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we who were once having nothing to do with God, have entered a new relationship with God. In the past, we were aliens from God's people, but now we are part of God's people, which is the church. 
In the past, we were strangers from the covenants of promise, but now we are the beneficiaries of the new covenant Christ fulfilled on the cross. And now we are part of the new covenant community, which is, again, the church. We were once outsiders who couldn't even attempt to do good works for God. But in Christ, we have become full members of God's household who can do good works for God. So doing good works as God's people is a great privilege given to a few chosen people. If you are saved by faith through grace, apart from works, and you're part of this church, the new covenant community, then you are the few, one among the few chosen who have been given of the great privilege to do good God, good works for God. The reason we can have such privilege is that we have become part of the new covenant community, again, which is the church. A lot of this truth, we have to remember this fact. Serving God by serving the church is not a hard, unpleasant burden, but it is a great privilege and blessing from God. Think about myself. I'm an assistant pastor at College Park Baptist Church. I am the church planner of Kerry Sarang Church, which means I am quite busy. And I, but I'm, I love working as a pastor. You, do you know what I was thinking on the way here about two and a half hours of driving? Maybe probably I slept about four hours. And I, uh, upon, on, the, on the top of that, actually, if you can look at my finger, it seems like I broke my finger <laughs> by playing basketball last night. I don't know what happened to my finger, but I cannot move it on my own. So I, I need to go to urgent care after the Korean church today. I could have gone to urgent care first, forgetting about this church and the Korean church. But I didn't want to do that. And of course, Pastor Matty asked last night, looking at me, Hey, Joe, you'll, you'll be able to preach. <laughs> that looks weird. You'll be able to preach. And I know, actually, if, if it were Pastor Matt who broke his finger, I know he's going to come and preach and then go to urgent care. I didn't have even the slightest feeling that I'm being manipulated by being a pastor in this church. No, this is great privilege. I was so excited to preach this message to you this morning as was I was listening to the sermon I already wrote over and over and over again and what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it, and how I can depend on God as I am saying these things. I was so, I felt so privileged to, the, to this work. So this is not an unpleasant burden. It is a great privilege. Why? Because I was the sinner condemned by God who deserved to go to hell. I couldn't even attempt to please God with my sinful nature and my lifestyle. Yet God saved me from that pet and not just saved me, but made me a pastor who can preach his word to the beloved sisters and brothers in Christ, and that is an amazing privilege. If you're a deacon, it's a great privilege for you to work. And of course, you know, deacon's work is hard. And may sometimes you have to, you know, uh, unclog something that's uh, clogged <laughs> in the toilet. It's a big work. It's a hard work, yet it is a great 
privilege. What about being a good you know, door greeter? You have to come a little early to church. Sometimes you might feel like you're, um, you're tired, you want to have a 10, more sleep, 10, more, um, 10 minutes of more sleep, but you just come. Why? Because you want to serve this church. Because this is a church that God has given to you. What about a nursery worker? I mean, having two children, I know it is so hard to do <laughs> the work of nursery. Yet it is a great privilege again. You know, changing diapers may seem very insignificant in the eyes of some people, but this is an amazing task God has given to you, especially ladies who can work with the young babies. And what about being a Sunday school teacher? You know, of course, you have to constantly interact with the parents of the children. And also sometimes you know, children don't obey. They act up. Yeah, at the same time, this is great privilege. You are tr you're influencing them with your life, the truths that you're teaching them, which you couldn't do apart from Christ, but because you are in Christ, God is using you to be that. What about the being a part of the uh, cleaning crew? You know, we are recruiting <laughs> this team or two. Now, if you haven't done it yet and you can do it, you have time to do it, you have health to, to, to do it, why don't you be part of it and be happy, you know, cleaning the church when nobody sees you? And that's the sweetest moment, actually, for me. And I remember you know, after the Lord changed my life from a crazy, worldly, Sunday Christian to a very serious, but not knowing much, but very serious Christian. There was no one who was cleaning the bathrooms in the church. I was in Korea. I mean, it's like it, there were some ones, but it's not that there was no person who was designated to that job. So what I did was I was just you know, scrubbing the toilets. Being happy, you know, praising God. And I was so happy to do that. Why? Because that was the privilege for me. It wasn't a hard job. It wasn't an unpleasant work. But it was a great privilege that I can do this so that someone else doesn't have to do it and the rest of the church can enjoy their time in bathroom without worrying about all the dirt on the floor. And that was great thing, and it is great thing still. And I love to clean the church. Why? Because it's a great privilege. It's not a burden. It's not a waste of time. This is an amazing work God has given to me. What about being a mower? It's a big job. You have to mow at least two hours if you're part of the, this group. And it, it, it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes three or four hours. Sometimes you have to do the uh, brush, uh, bushes, uh, trim the bushes, and cut the long grass, and you need to do, do the edging. And it takes you some extra hours too, but yet, at the same time, this is a great pro privilege God has given to you as the mower of the church, providing a ride to the church members who need a ride. It's a great privilege. Making meals for the sick in the church. It's a great privilege. Writing cards to the people who are sick, who are away from us. For instance, like David, Dorsey, who just joined the military, he's going to give me the address of his barrack and in his boot camp, and I'm going to share it with you all. You can write a card to him, you know, writing a verse from the scripture, encouraging him, telling him, praise, I'm praying, we're praying for you. And there's a great privilege you can do to encourage that soul. And what about giving to the church? Yeah, that's a great privilege. And so many people think that, you know, pastor, when pastor talks about giving to the church, they feel like, you know, this pastor just loves money and things like that. That's not the case. The Bible is very clear that we have to give to the Lord through giving to the church, local churches. And that is, it's not a burden. 
This is a great privilege that is given to us so that our money can be used for the furtherance of the gospel and also helping the pastors who need their own money to live on and also helping you know, many other ministries who are in need in our church. And those are all privileges. These are not burdens or any unpleasant works. Therefore, doing good works for the church is not a burden but a privilege. We were once strangers to God, having nothing to do with him. But in Christ, we have become God's beloved children who have the great privilege of doing good works for him in the church. There's another truth we need to know about good works we must do as God's people. We must do good works in the church for the peace and unity of the church. This is point number three. We are reconciled to each other to do good works as God's own, God's one people. We are reconciled to each other to do good works as God's one people. We are created as one new humanity or new man to keep the peace of the church. The verse 14, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, Christ is our peace, who have made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So the wall between the Jews and Gentiles is gone, lifted because of Christ, who is the peace, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man, here you see one new humanity from the two, thus making peace. So through the death on the cross, the Lord Jesus broke down the inseparable wall between Jews and Gentiles. If Christ's death on the cross could reconcile Jews and Gentiles, it means that it can reconcile any two people groups in the whole world. Do you, do you know anything about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles? That relationship is like, was like, still is like a relationship, the relationship between oil and water. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You can shake it <laughs> to the, to the, you know, until the cows come home. But you cannot mix oil and water. Oil and water are immiscible. I, learned, I actually learned this word this time. Immiscible means do not mix. Do not uh, go together. So this is because water is a polar molecule, meaning that a water molecule has a positive charge on one hand and the one end and the negative charge the other end. Water molecules stick together because the positive end of one water molecule is attracted to the negative end of another. On the other hand, the structure of oil molecules are nonpolar. So its charge is evenly balanced rather than having one positive and one negative end. This means oil molecules are more attracted to other oil molecules than water molecules. And water molecules are more attracted to each other than oil, so the two never mix. And as for some of you who have been wondering why they never mix each other uh, with each other, and that's why. I mean, they have different nature. And just like that, Jews and Gentiles couldn't mingle at all. Why? Jews abhorred Gentiles because to them, Gentiles were inherently unclean. To Jews, Gentiles were like dogs who were dirty and unclean wild animals. Of course, dogs for us are, are pets, you know, lovely pets. But in the past, dogs weren't pets. They were like wild, vicious animals that are eating on the dead carcasses in the street. 
And the Jewish people, when they were thinking about Gentiles, they were thinking of those dogs. The Jewish hostility against the Gentiles becomes more vivid in the way the Jews treated Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were half Jews, and yet at the same time, half Gentiles. They may have been a quarter Gentile. <laughs> maybe, maybe, may have been a tenth of Gentiles. And at the same time, they, their blood was tainted by the blood of Gentiles. So the Jewish people didn't want to do anything with the Samaritans while they still shared some heritage from the Jewish history, the traditions. So they did their best. The Jewish people did their best to avoid the Samaritans. And that's why, uh, why you know, we know the Good Samaritans history in Luke. And everybody was shocked when they were hearing it, this Jewish audience you know, from Jesus Christ. Because the Samaritan is supposed to be a bad person. But why is this a good, good guy in this story? And that was a shocking news to, story to the Jewish ears. Because for them, Samaritans were they're defiled people. They are unclean people who are good for nothing. What about, what about Gentiles thinking about Jews? Gentiles also looked down on the Jews because to them, the Jews were atheists. Atheists? Why do I say that they were considered atheists to the Gentiles? It is because the Jewish people refused to offer sacrifices to the pagan gods. And it looked to the Gentiles that these guys are refusing their own gods, only worshiping their one God, and they felt that they were actually like atheists, you know, denying the existence of their own gods. Because in the Roman Empire especially, uh, when you actually enter a new town, you are supposed to give a tribute to the gods of that town. This kind of manner is good manner. Being a good Roman citizen, you have to offer sacrifices to the gods of the region so that you can honor the culture there and the people there. The Jewish people refused that no matter where they, where they were. That's why they were considered atheists. Actually, we have some historical records that uh, actually, in which we find that Jewish people were accused of atheism because they, were, they would never mingle with the Gentile culture. But uh, the, what's amazing about Christ's death on the cross is that it removed not only the enmity between God and sinners, but also the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And Jews and Gentiles are never meant to be together, yet in Christ, the separating wall between them is completely lifted. In the Old Testament, God's people were defined by the physical mark on their bodies, which is circumcision. But now in the New Testament, whether Jews or Gentiles, anyone who has faith in the crucified Messiah becomes part of God's new humanity, which is the church. What is the practical implication of the reconciliation, reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles in Christ's death? Regardless of our gender, ethnic, cultural, racial, language differences, through Christ's blood, we have become one humanity. In the past, we had nothing to do with each other. To be honest with you, I had nothing to do with you, American friends and Indian friends and some other friends from other countries. I had nothing to do with you. But when I found Christ, and when you found Christ, we began to share 
everything with one another. Why? Because Christ put away the enmity between God and us and also you and I. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how much you make monthly. It doesn't really matter. We love each other. Why? Christ brought us together through his blood. Despite our differences, we have peace among ourselves because we serve the same Lord Jesus Christ. And we must conduct good works to keep the peace among ourselves. And we, so we are reconciled as one body to, to keep the unity of the church, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, Paul says, And that he might reconcile them both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he became and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. So now we belong to one body whose head is Christ. So we must do our best to maintain unity among ourselves. Just like the members of the body help each other for the well-being of the whole body, we must help and support each other for the well-being of Christ's body, the church. Let me give you a really immediate, like, lively illustration. I, I cannot use this finger now. I'm right-handed. So from uh, last night, I've been using my left hand. <laughs> All this feels awkward. I have to use my left hand. Why? My right hand doesn't work. So this, this guy has to help this guy. That is the perfect illustration for the church. You know, we are members to one another, belonging to one body. So if you see a member being not being able to do something, what are you going to do about it? You need to be there to support that person to do what he or she is supposed to do for the well-being of the entire body. So uh, today's message doesn't have actually... Uh, specific applications because uh, you can find various applications in uh, pastor sermon series on the unity in the church. Have you noticed, you know, some of you who are coming to evening services already might already knew, know, uh, pastor has been preaching on this topic beginning with Ephesians 4. We're in the middle of that series. And actually the, the good works that Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 he begins to uh, give uh, vivid applications of the truth, beginning with chapter 4 of Ephesians. So what I'm saying is, I don't have to give you a lot of application this morning, but you can actually listen to the messages that pastor has already preached. He has preached like five or six sermons already. So you can listen to them and then know what you need to apply according to this truth. And also he'll continue to preach on those passages telling us what to do to keep the unity of the church. So my goal in this message today is very simple, to make ourselves aware that we can't practice good works apart, apart from the context of the faith community, which is the church. So the church is super important to God and super important to us. As, as ending the sermon today, what is the example the Lord Jesus left us uh, before his death? Let's go to John 13. And Brother Roger read it for us this morning. John 13, you find that Jesus is washing the feet of 
his disciples. Verse 14, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Did you know that as Jesus was preparing for his own death on the cross, the major focus, the major emphasis he shared with his disciples over and over and over again was, you have to serve each other just like I am serving you. You have to die for one another just I am dying for you. That was the greatest emphasis Christ was making as he was heading to the hill of Calvary. And if we know that, how can we neglect the idea among ourselves that we have to serve one another? You know, washing other people's feet is not a clean job, especially for those, you know, in the past and among the gen- uh, disciples. Of course, Peter said what? Jesus was scooping down. What did Peter say? Nope, 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 nope. You will not touch my feet, master. You are, you don't deserve it. I mean, what you deserve is you need to be served by me, not you, me to me. That was the, the idea. I mean, the cleaning the feet was the worst thing a person could do. Even many slaves didn't want to do. Why? Because that was a job designated to the, the lowest among the slaves. And then the greatest master, scooping down, washing those dirty, stinky feet, and then looking at their eyes, saying, hey, I've done it to you. I'm your teacher. I'm your master. You have to do the same to one another. Of course, good works is this, obeying Jesus' command, right? That's good work. Let's go to the you know, same chapter, verse 34. What's the commandment that the Lord Christ has given us? John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and you also love one another. So how can you love one another? By cleaning the feet of one another, doing dirty jobs, hard jobs, difficult jobs for one another. That's the only way you demonstrate your love for God and for the church and as as a parent as a dad of two child young children i know it is hard to love children why it's hard to raise children it costs you everything you have actually sometimes more than you have <laughs> you're out of your at the end of yourself yourself and you can't open your eyes anymore but your baby's still crying for something you fed them you've changed the diaper you've done everything you could do still crying what are you going to do? Are you going to just go, go back to sleep? Muffling your eyes, ears? No. You'll just wake up and help the baby. Why? Because you love the baby. That's what love does. And that's what Christ is saying here. I love you so much, so I give my life for you. I love you so much, so I wash your feet, which is not actually supposed for, for, me, for me to do. But it wasn't his job, actually. But yeah, he did it. Why? Because he loved his disciples. And he's saying, this is my command for, commandment for you. You need to do the same exactly in the way I did to you. And why can't we testify to the world that we... I, 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 let me say it again. How can we let the world know that we love God 
and we follow Christ. Next verse, verse 35. By this, what is by this? By loving one another, by giving our lives for one another, by washing the feet of each other, we all, everybody will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. Do you want to testify to the world that you love God? That there's only one thing you need to do. You need to give your life for this church. I'm not talking about Pastor Matt, per se. He's part of the church, but I'm talking about you're giving your life for each other, the people around you. You spend your time, your energy, and your, your everything, your possessions. And you, you just try to serve these people who are just like you. We were like, we're all Gentiles. Is there any Jewish person? We're all Gentiles. Is a Korean Gentile better or American Gentile better? Both are worst. <laughs> we're all worst Gentiles. Without Christ having no hope, without God, we were apart from the commonwealth of Israel. We didn't have any promises of the covenants, the covenants of promises. Yet because of Christ, we have entered this house, the one household of God, which is called the church. And we ought to love one another just like Christ has done for us. So remember, the good works Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2.10 is not just the good works we do outside the church. Although it includes them partially, yet the main focus is what? The good works we do for one another. That's the works God prepared for us before the foundation of the world so that we would walk in them until we die. Until we die. Let's pray. Precious Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for the grace that you have given to us. You didn't have to save us. You didn't have to send your son. Jesus didn't have to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. But you and your son have done it all through the power of the Holy Spirit. Gracious Father, we are claiming you, the triune God. We, we claim you, Father. We claim your son, Jesus. We claim your spirit, the Holy Spirit. Yet if we do not do what you have done for us, what is that to us, Lord? Just help us to do exactly what Christ has done for us. We will make mistakes. We will come short at times. Yeah, Lord, please help us not to give up on it. Help us to continue to do good works for one another. Lord, it doesn't matter what it cost us. It cost Christ everything he had for us. Then why don't we? Why should, should, should we be afraid of costing anything and everything we have? Just help us to be alivened. Help us to be not to blind to this truth. And help us to look at this truth as it is. And help us to apply it. And also bless Pastor series on the unity in the church continuously. And help, help our church members to, to give more attention to that series. And help us to think about the ways we can do to keep the unity in this church. To promote the peace among ourselves. And if there's anyone in this church, any people in our church who have any enmity against each other. Any hostility one another is there anyone who is looking down on other members of this church please use this moment use your truth to change that person's heart that that, that, that they would uh, turn from their own ways but they would cling to christ's way 
Lord, Christ didn't die for us because we deserved it. We don't have to, we, we, we're not here to love each other because each other, we are, we deserve each other's love. But we are here because you loved us who didn't deserve any of it. And now you're commanding us this, love one another by laying down our lives for each other. So please, Lord, help us to do that. Help us do the good works for your glory and for the unity of College Park Baptist Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.